Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Prefrontal Podcast, your go-to source for intriguing conversations in the realm of neuroscience. My name is Isabel. And I'm Patrick. Today we're bridging the gap between human resources, psychology, and neuroscience. We're digging into how emotional intelligence interplays with productivity and decision-making. Exactly. We'll be taking a deep dive into this multifaceted field, decoding its essence, its misconceptions, and its pivotal role in our personal and professional lives. To help us navigate this complex terrain, we're joined by pioneering researcher whose work epitomizes the interaction of these intriguing domains, Dr. Deeksha Sharma. Dr. Sharma is a four times TEDx speaker, and after completing her MBA, Deeksha attained her PhD from the Indian Institute of Technology in Roorkee where she specialized in emotional intelligence. Currently based at Cornell University, her research focuses on the science behind emotions and how they relate to productivity and decision-making capabilities. Throughout our conversation with Deeksha, we'll explore the intricate nuances of emotional intelligence and how it contrasts with IQ, as well as her studies using fMRI to uncover fascinating insights into the default mode network and its connection with mindfulness and meditation. Without further ado, let's dive into this fascinating discussion and warmly welcome Deeksha onto the show. So, welcome Deeksha to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, Isabel. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me to your amazing podcast. I think it's a beautiful initiative and um, I love being with you guys. Yeah, so thanks. And we're very excited to have you here. So thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure is all mine. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your research and if there's any overarching themes in the studies you've been a part of? Uh, well, interestingly, my research is interdisciplinary. And that's what Cornell looked at it. Um, it's basically galvanizing uh, some part of neuroscience, some part of psychology, some part of management. And a lot of... Uh, technical background if I talk about so. So if I look, what I'm doing at present is basically doing research on emotions. So everything is about emotions. Specifically, my PhD is about emotional intelligence and how uh, emotional intelligence is impacting different attributes of our lives. For example, decision-making or self-efficacies or any kind of responses and reactions to different kind of external stimulants. But uh, if I say so, that what I work on, I'll just say I work on emotions, and that makes things easier. Thank you. Um, so emotional intelligence is a term that is thrown around a lot, and it can be pretty hard to define. Can you help us by breaking down what it means to be emotionally intelligent? Like, what does emo an emotionally intelligent person look like? <laughs> okay, Isabel, thank you for the question. So, um, yeah, of course, emotional intelligence is something which has come up like which is in the market for a very long time but people are understanding that so if i talk about emotional intelligence i'll break into two emotions and intelligence so emotions are nothing but it is the uh response or, or reaction to a stimuli in our body and we're going to talk about it that how does it work and intelligence is just the ability to solve a problem so if I take emotional intelligence, it is the ability to understand, manage, assess your emotions and others' emotions. So it's very simple. The thing is, people are getting intimidated by the fact that, oh, the term is like so heavy, like EI, 
I don't know whether I have it or not. It's just because it is being marketed in that way in research or or in the terms of business. So if people are coming like, oh, I'm an EI coach, oh, it's, it's a big thing. I don't know what this term means, but it's so simple because uh, if you go back to our grandmom and granddad, like grandparents, uh, you'll find they're using emotions, right? And they, in the evolution of the um, humans, we found that emotions have played a very vital role. So we already have EI. The only thing is we, we have termed it EI and we are coming with different models to understand that. So it looks intimidating, but trust me, we all have some sort of emotional intelligence in us. Uh, it varies from people to people. So as Isabel asked the question that how, uh, you know, an emotional intelligent person will look like, I think everyone has that kind of intelligence. It is the capability of the, uh, you know, how you're able to acknowledge that, how much you acknowledge it, and how much you manage it. So that's the thing. So everybody has it, but how you are managing it makes you more efficient in EI. Okay, so delving deeper into this difference between emotional intelligence and IQ, one thing I've heard you say in the past that was a bit perplexing is that people who are in the highest level jobs, particularly those in positions of leadership, are actually served better by having mid-level EQ as opposed to very high EQs. And this seems counterintuitive because at least to me, I would think having a higher IQ, a higher general intelligence, could only be a positive trait when it comes to leading an organization. And to take your definition of EQ, having the ability to understand and control your own and others' emotions, it seems like there would be no cap on the utility of this trait. So could you explain why this is and how this can help us understand the difference between EQ and IQ? Yeah. Um, so first, I think uh, I think we're laying down a platform to understand the difference between IQ and EI. Um, there, this is a bone of contention, you know, like what is the difference between the, the IQ and EI and people like fight with all the swords they have in their, you know, uh, academic and business perspective. Um, if I talk about this, I will say that EI is, as I already mentioned, it's an ability to manage emotions, right? And that should be modulated with the kind of work you are doing. So if there is a mom at home taking care of a kid, the kind of EI she requires, the kind of empathy she requires is different than an empathy of uh, a manager at an organization setup or for example, a CEO or a founder of a company who is heading maybe thousand employees, how the person has to work around his and the employee's emotions. Are, so the level of empathy and the level of managing that empathy and showing and exhibiting emotions is going to be different. If it's not, then definitely we are not working around the right kind of EI. Talking about IQ, as you said, the higher the IQ, better it is. Uh, there are people with higher IQ, but they're they're not self-efficient. Their self-efficacies are not that great. So IQ doesn't mean that you're efficient in you know doing a task. You are good in assessing the information, and you know that this is a solution. But the thing is, are you able to put that into application? You know, so we cannot generalize it. It's so any kind of intelligence, it's very subjective. Humans are very complex. So when all, term, all types of intelligence came into being, whether it's general intelligence or IQ or EI or whatnot, 
the problem was that it's very subjective to to the perspective of demographics or the perspective of the definition of intelligence you have created for. So if you're talking about IQ, it's entirely a different set of thing. If you're talking about EI, it's entirely a different thing. They are still connected, but they are not the same thing. Now, if you talk about EI in like, in the perspective of like people with high-end jobs or people who are managing big uh, groups of other people and uh, where you see that their managing ability is not only depending on IQ, but also on EI, but they have to make sure that what is the basic role they have to do in an organization. That is to complete a task and to make sure the team is healthy, physically, emotionally, and professionally. So that they don't need to be super emotional uh, as a human being. They need to create a balance. And that's why the high-end jobs, or I should not say high-end jobs, the people with, which are basically the CEOs or founders, they're not supposed to be super duper emotional. I mean, they don't need to cry every time or they don't need to be like, if somebody's crying in front of them, they, they don't need to be like, oh, I'm so, I'm so, I'm feeling so sad about it. But they don't know the solution that how to solve it. So IQ has to be mid-level where they understand what's happening with the team they can acknowledge what are the problems for the team and they're able to find a solution for that problem. So that is the basic idea to not have super duper high EI. So extremes doesn't work anywhere. It's just, and that's why we have um, different studies for understanding EI for different models with different demographics and different places. So one rule doesn't work everywhere. Okay, so someone who is the head of an organization should have some level of aloofness or even ruthlessness and can't be totally concerned with the emotions of everyone all of the time. I, I wonder if it's more of a confounding factor because um, if they're emotionally intelligent, then maybe they're not necessarily more emotional. For example, someone who's emotionally intelligent would know in the situation what to do and not to overreact emotionally. I wonder if it's more to do with either um, men more likely being uh, in top positions and uh, women are generally have higher emotional intelligence, uh, or if maybe it could be someone who um, is more likely to climb or be a workaholic, that though they perform really well in a position and, um, and excel in certain positions, they often don't have a very good work-life balance and perhaps lower emotional intelligence. Do you think that's also a possibility? I like the crossover you just mentioned right now. So uh, talking about gender uh, specifically, so in, even in my study, the emotional intelligence was higher for women than men. But if you see that there was a one study which was uh, juxtaposing to this particular study, which I just, I just told you. And interestingly, the self-efficacy of women was also higher than men. And that is that is very, very interesting. So here there is, again, I can say, not exactly we're contradicting what I just said, but then we just cannot say that if a woman is having a higher EI, she will not be fitting in the higher positions. No, I don't think so. Because the, uh, the group I studied were the people like 
from professional setups in India and Dubai. And I found that how uh, women with higher EI were really great in the their self-efficacies as well. So gender-wise, we cannot take it. But if we, if we remove the gender as a factor and just look at it that how EI should play a role, then of course, uh, a person exhibiting the, the, uh, the basics of EI at household or at a company or making a company or maybe in an institution where they have to handle more than um, thousands and thousands of people, then things will vary in all these cases, irrespective of the gender. But if we talk about gender, then definitely, as Isabel said, that thing happened with me also. I, I totally corroborate what she said that for women, uh, yeah, you know, emotional intelligence is higher. And uh, there might be, uh, there, may, there may be many reasons for that. So in my study, I was working on literality, like the, the two uh, parts of our brain, like uh, how they do their work. And we found in the perception of emotions, both right and left hemisphere of the brain were active. So women were bilateral in nature, wherein men were more right hemisphere oriented. Um, so I just tried to understand why this is happening. And there were many neuroscientists which have given the reasons like, so we have corpus callosum between the two hemispheres, which is way more larger. So the neural connects are higher for women. And maybe because of that, we are more bilateral in nature, uh, women, you know? But having said that, uh, gender has always, again, been a bone of contention that, you know, this is happening, oh, this, the, you know, this particular kind of intelligence is higher and men or this spite of intelligence is higher in women. So I will not get into that, but definitely the way women experiences and solves a situation is different than men because of many reasons. Maybe the epigenics comes into uh, the point or anatomy comes into the point or uh, maybe the conditioning, you know, as a woman from like a little girl and the way we gather information and our defense mechanism work and how we process information in our brain. Uh, there are many factors to it. So again, I will not be generalizing it, but if you look at different, different studies, we will find interesting outputs, like, you know, that uh, women in India is working differently than in the United States, and uh, maybe in, uh, you know, in Dubai. And we'd love to give one example here. So there was one study where I was trying to understand that, um, so my question to them was like in India specifically and in the United States and in Dubai to, uh, to the women uh, working professionals, are you comfortable working with men, the opposite sex? And they thought that I'm from human resource. So they were like, oh, I have to say yes, you know? So, oh, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty comfortable, everything is fine. But again, when you ask a question and when you do a, a semi-experiment, a quasi-experiment, things are different because then the possibilities of SDRs, the social desirable responses, reduces. So what I did was there was, uh, we, we did some experiment with them. We showed some pictures and they had to do uh, some, some activity, a task. And through that, we were able to understand that what exactly is happening with them. So when I did that in India and in Dubai specifically, I found that women who were saying that we are, just not women, but even men, who were saying that, oh, we are comfortable working with the opposite sex. But when they did that experiment, they were part of that experiment, it was found that they were taking way more longer time than doing that task than having somebody with a similar sex in that particular task. So that was interesting. And the other interesting part was 
the expats from America and Europe who have been in Dubai for maybe 10 years, okay? So culture becomes a very important factor in defining your intelligence. Even people coming from the countries where, you know, things are really pretty good, but when they come to Dubai, they, they don't even realize it, but they get conditioned to it. And their responses were similar to uh, people who were resident of Dubai or were nationals of maybe India. And that was interesting. But people who were actually in America for a longer time or in Australia for a longer time, the results were different. Yes, exactly. So conditioning is very important, whether it's IQ or it's emotional intelligence. And it was very interesting to see that, that how culture impacts the way you behave and you solve a problem. Okay, well, thank you for that explanation. So it's very clear that your research is quite interdisciplinary from business industrial organization to psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Since this is a neuroscience-themed podcast, would you mind highlighting a bit of your research that used more traditional neural methods, such as fMRI? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I got the opportunity to um, understand how fMRI works at Cornell, and we were supposed to do one interesting um, task. So see, the task was to uh, look at that how uh, savings and uh, how, uh, you know, how how much you earn, how much you save, and how much you spend. And you will be given some task where you will be given some amount of money and you have to decide what you're going to do with it. And then we, we're going to scan the brain and see what activities actually happening, what exactly is happening with you. So um, instead of being very uh, neuroscience in the terms of, you know, just looking at some, some stimuli and just what's happening in your brain, we were giving them some tasks so as to see that what kind of decisions are they going to make looking at that task. So it was very interesting. And uh, just not only that, but we also uh, tried to work on different stimuli where uh, it was based on culture, as I already mentioned that, you know, uh, looking at different stimuli and seeing how, how does their brain is working and what part of the brain is getting activated when they're actually seeing the thing and conditioning their brain with different, different stimuli and at the end of it, uh, showing them one particular stimuli, which you have shown them in the earlier, in the first hand, but there's a difference because of the way you have conditioned it in the second experiment. So uh, we were doing this, but because of the COVID, we stopped because everything was like at the halt and we were not supposed to do anything. Hmm. But interestingly, um, having said that, this was something which we, we worked on and we tried to find that how does our brain work, especially uh, understanding uh, emotions. So for example, uh, same part of the brain gets activated uh, when you are looking at your loved one, like your mom, and you're looking at something which you love the most, like an, an object, an animate, an animate object, like maybe a phone. So there are many studies on that as well, that uh, you know, in, you know, the same part of the brain gets activated when you're looking at your mom and then in your iPhone. And that's a problem with the new generation, you know, that uh, everything is getting mixed up. Your emotional labeling is so messed up that, you know, you are not able to, the brain is not able to differentiate uh, between animate and inanimate objects. And if you down it line, like if you just connect the dots, it's come, it comes actually to your mental well-being. And that was what intrigued me, that 
we should not stop here like you know that the studies are saying oh this part is getting activated this is happening with us but we need to understand why this is happening and what will be the fallout of having this kind of emotional labeling because if this is happening that means our priorities and the way we have labeled our emotions and our you know feelings are just not for living beings but also for non living beings and that's why there are so many relationship issues and there are so many uh, wrong labelings and we are so confused we don't do it deliberately but very innocently we have labeled things and we don't know we have done that and that is why uh, there's so many problems in youngsters and they need to be supported and to be understood and uh, that's why from emotional intelligence and from whatever like i was doing i started to pivot myself more towards mental wellbeing and towards mental health and uh, i did give a lot of talks there were tedx talks there were a lot many work sessions which i do even now i do that and in my experience of 8 to 9 years of my research and counseling and i found that whatever you do in research is not going to help until unless you don't have an application of that so for me it's very important that if if i'm writing a paper or 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 a chapter in a book how many people are going to read it but if i'm able to talk to somebody uh, who doesn't understand neuroscience but i am able to talk in a very subtle and humble way that he's not or she's not getting intimidated by my terms and words which i'm using but i'm able to convey a message that how important it is for you to understand your mental well-being because i have done research on that so i know the the precursors i know the fallout and if you can work on it it'll help your health uh, that's going to that, that's always give me a kick so that's my next thing from you know shifting from research to some kind of application hmm, very cool do you see a generational divide when it comes to this attachment to our smartphones for instance when older people look at their phones do they also activate their love centers in the same way generational divide definitely for sure there is the way the prior generation we talk about baby boomers uh that was entirely different millennials were still better but uh, the gen z uh, i think they are so much into validation and so much into you know a uh, frequent dopamine high like they just want that high mm. clicking things or by scrolling 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 so the kind of high they get every time and because they get used to it they then they want another high and it's an artificial way of creating an environment for them which is not good or healthy but they have a part of their life and um, i i do a lot of counseling into with the young generation and and you know they have a basic question they don't have real connections they have lot many virtual connections but they don't have real connections so so they are connected with people but they're still not connected so more of a superficial connection yeah and and, and they're like they're slave of their phone you know swipe swipe you know like this they, they they are not able to stop their fingers so actually what happens is like it, it as it's a really great question patrick about the general you know the divide in generation because i'll take an example here if you talk about the older generation maybe our grandparents maybe time of world war 1 or 2 to even do a single task they have to get up from their seat go out of their house perform the task and then come back home right of this generation just take your phone take just take the app click get the result so how you have conditioned your brain is 
that with this click with your finger, you can do anything. So the, the time period of patience, the time period to analyze a situation and to do something is like shortened. There's no, there's no like, response time gap. And because of that, the, the level of patience has reduced. You're like, you'll click and you'll get it. I'm supposed to get it the moment I'll click it. Whether you are on a dating app or maybe you're buying groceries or doing anything. And because of that, uh, it's a good thing because that's the way we'll be developed as humans. But there is always a collateral damage. And the collateral damage is that our conditioning of brain is very different. Sitting like on the bed, we'll get everything. All sort of information. In earlier times, people like, the, I think my grandma and granddad, they had to go to a library, a central library, <laughs> read the books and the papers to get the information. Now, just click it and you will get it. So you have stopped valuing that how you're getting that information because you have it at your per user. So if you're not getting something, maybe in relationship, maybe professionally or anyway, you get panicky. Oh my God, it's, this is not in my control because phone makes you feel that you're in control but actually you're not in control so older generation were conditioned that i'm not in control of anything i have to put in some hard work whether it's my profession or my love life or my personal life whatever but now because of this kind of conditioning even if the slightest thing doesn't work you're like oh my god nothing is in my control nothing is working for me oh my god oh my god and that is one problem and that's a beautiful question patrick thank you so much for throwing this question this is actually creating a divide. And we cannot do anything about it because we have to grow. Uh, I mean, we have to be, we are going towards AI and ML, right? So we have to be like this, but if you're even aware of it, even if the, the young generation is aware that this is happening with me, I think this will be fair enough. But the problem is they're not even aware what's happening with them. Yeah, I've heard some people respond to this sort of panic over reduced attention spans and the addiction to phones by pointing out that historically when books became more popular to a wider audience, people feared that children would be hurt from reading too much and not engaging in more practical activities and that there were similar fears over children watching too much TV and playing too many video games but that as time went on, these fears about modern forms of media were never realized. But it does seem evident that these modern algorithms and attention-capturing apps are having a detrimental effect on the minds and mental health of young people in a way that newer technologies didn't seem to have in the past. Absolutely. I mean, there's always uh, the rule of normalization. We always normalize everything. So we will definitely normalize it and definitely will be going upwards only. We won't go downwards. But it's just like this is a glitch which need to be catered in another way. Like we need to focus more on the mental well-being of young people and to understand what's happening with them. Because this wasn't the need in the previous times, but we, this is the need right now. So we don't need to stop in our development, but we need to focus more on mental health.
Uh-huh. They are. I think Isabel, you're absolutely right. So I was, I would, I was um, invited for a podcast in one uh, place where we were talking specifically about youngsters, and I just mentioned there, and I will mention it here as well. I think the generation which has gone through COVID, especially the youngsters who were in school or colleges or wherever they were, they're gonna be better people in the coming time when they'll be in their thirties and forties, because they have seen something which we we have not while we were not in our schools we were not like we were we had a normal life they did not for another two to three years so they know how to manage it maybe it would have been very difficult for them maybe uh things didn't work out for them for the mental health but they turned it around and you're absolutely right isabel they are more aware of their emotional health than the prior generations so definitely you know there's always if there's a problem, there's always a solution. That's the beauty of human evolution. And that's the way I look at it. So what I feel is the coming generation is going to be way more stronger than uh, the previous generation. So if you talk about World War, World War One or Two, at that time, the people who suffered that or Great Depression, they were way more stronger than the people who did not experience that. Same as with this COVID or being part of any choice paralysis, as you just mentioned, there's too many choices. People are not able to understand things, specifically Gen Z, but they're smarter because they didn't got the option to meet people. They found ways and they're doing amazingly. I mean, they, they are so creative because they knew that sitting at home, they can't do anything. So just they opened the computer, did some courses, understood the world, even not being part of any course. And that's amazing. They want to do something. They want to create a difference. And I have, a, I have a huge respect for them that even after going through so many problems, whatever they're facing, they are still trying to manage everything. And they are better than uh, the previous generation, for sure. Based on what you previously said, I was wondering, how would you say that people living in today's society with uh, smartphones and social media, how can we circumvent the issues of um lower detention, uh, that the issues of lower detention can cause on our mental health while still taking advantage of the plethora of online opportunities to improve your mental health? Thank you so much, for the question. Um, Before I start this question, I I just want to tell the audience, as we already discussed about it, that we should not get intimidated by EI. It is something which we already have. So it's not that difficult to work around it, even if the external factors are very challenging for us. Um, Talking about specifically about emotions, it has been part of us from a very long time when at a very primitive stage. So we had a primitive brain and now we have cortex, neocortex and everything, but we had the primitive brain and it already had the amygdalas to, to fight or flight something. And fight and flight or any kind of defense mechanism came from what you're feeling. So emotions were always the base of what human has done and is going to do in the future. So emotions are very integral part. Everybody feels something or the other. So we do. We are not supposed to feel uh, be feeling intimidated that oh I don't know what to do about it. So as you already said that you know talking about phones or not having the right kind of retention or focus. This is uh, one of the um, you can say a collateral damage to, to the way we are developing as in, uh, 
And with uh, the era of AI and machine learning, definitely it's going to impact us more. But there are different ways to work around it because human intelligence, or we specifically talk about emotions, is something which machines are going to take a very longer run to, to learn because we are very subjective and very complex. And that's the beauty about emotions. You cannot learn about them. You cannot be like, oh, I know everything about emotions. It's not like that. Never. I mean, we used to sit at Cornell and our professors and I used to say, we, we have like seven, eight years of experience working around emotion, but we don't know how it works. <laughs> so yeah, because that's the beauty and that's the challenge. So these are the points I really want the audience to know that we're going to be always subjective and there'll be always something to learn about human behavior and emotions because it's just so deep driven. But having said that, what are the things which we can do about it? So as we can a little bit moderate what we are feeling and how we are feeling. So for example, um, one way we do is like, uh, we do a lot of, like people are asking to do a lot of meditation. That's a good way to uh, work around it, you know, breathing in, breathing out. But what exactly is happening behind that is the basic idea that why should we do that, you know? So, so when, whenever you're doing any kind of meditation, you're focusing on something or you're not focusing on anything, your, uh, your default network gets activated. Now that is the time when you are, you're not doing a particular task of the given instruction. So when that happens, most of the Eureka moment happens at that point of time. And it also helps you to uh, open the doors of your subconscious mind where maybe your past traumatic events have stored the information. So for example, something has happened in the past with you and your defense mechanism was, the mind's brain defense mechanism was to react to a situation or fight or flight or whatever the situation was and to forget it. So what, it's not actually forgetting it. You're not remembering it in your conscious brain, but in your subconscious brain, it's storing like a cache memory. So whenever something happens similar to that, anything, you know, what a brain will do, it'll say, oh, this is similar to what has happened in the past. Let me go back to the memory lane. Let me get that cache memory and just throw back that response. So most of us, even, I mean, I do, but there have been times where you just give a reaction or response and then you're like, Am I, I was not supposed to act like that, but I did. I don't know why I did it because that's a defense mechanism. That's the, you know, Maslow hierarchy theory where you want to feel secure and safe. That's what your brain wants you to feel like. So when you don't work on your prior traumas and when you don't understand what has happened, maybe in your childhood, maybe in your young time or whatsoever, and you forget what has happened with you, it's very important to go back and understand that trauma and even acknowledge whether there was a trauma or not. So whenever you're not doing any task and you're trying to lay out, you know, you can mellow down all your activities, even if that's not possible with, with the brain, brain always do millions and millions of calculations all the time. Maybe at that time, your brain can help to get some information from subconscious brain and understand what's happening with you. So talking about breathing activities. So some part of brains get activated where, where you feel like it's in a default network, where basically it's you feel that you're doing nothing, but it helps you. So speaking of the default mode network, it sounds like you're saying that increased DMN is associated with better meditation and better mental health. I'm still trying to fully understand this dynamic because in our next interview, we'll be talking to Professor Klaus Lincoln-Kerr Hansen. 
And it was my interpretation from taking his course that the DMN tends to evoke dark and ruminant thoughts that are actually detrimental to mental health and resilience. Isabel, is this also the interpretation that you came away with? Yeah, I, as I understood it, an overactive default mode network could lead to rumination. Um, and was uh, an overactive default mode network was associated with depressive symptoms. Yes, yes. So again, it's overactive. Mm. Again, moderation is important. Anything in excess is not good, right? So how much and how you're activating is very important. So that's why when you talk about meditation, that can be done in any form. So activating your default network is okay. But again, as, as Isabel just mentioned, that ruminating for a very long time and not working on it and not finding solution. So brain will have the same loop again and again, again and again. So it'll get into depressive mode because you're not getting an output for the brain to feel safe, right? So super active is not good, okay. but activating it is helping you to get some calm and composed time for yourself. And that's my, my idea to talk about it was that it's my breathing because there are many other ways if you're doing any tasks like maybe painting, maybe some music or art and how does your, how your brain is working around that. And recently I found there's a professor at Cornell uh, in the music department, which is actually working on different sounds. And in one of my initiative, I do this, like, uh, you know, understanding the art therapy and sound therapies and texture therapies, then how does it actually helping your brain to just soothe and calm yourself down for some time? When you're not focusing on any task that like, oh, I have to complete this task or I'm in a race or doing something, but actually just, you know, insinuating your sensations just to focus on that thing and nothing else. So that kind of help. And talking about breathing specifically, so our diaphragm is connected to the vagus nerve and is one of the longest nerve in our body, which connects most of our vital organs. So uh, that's why mental health is important for even for your immune system. So vagus nerve is the answer for that. So that's why, uh, like, so if if you're in tension, if you're stressed out, in, may, in most of the people I find that they have some churning feeling in their, their stomach because there are so many neural connections, even in the stomach. And it is just not that, it's your heart, it's your liver, it's everything is connected. So it, everything has some neural activity. So neural activity or neural connections are just not confined to your brain. So it's very important to understand that. So vagus nerve as being the longest nerve, it is helping you to understand that when you're stressed out, it's going to impact your vital organs like heart, beating in, beating down, your stomach, maybe acidity issues, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, there is like the blood flow issues. And uh, not only that, but it's also impacting immune system. So there's a gut brain axis. And we were about to work on this at Cornell, but we did not. But I am always intrigued by the fact that how your brain and gut are connected and how vagus nerve works uh, in our body and how it is important, just not to make sure that you are physically fit, so you are mentally fit, but it's other way around as well. When you will be mentally fit, only then you will be physically fit. Okay, thank you for your answer. You've mentioned in the past that you believe that artificial intelligence is going to have a profound impact on the way that emotional intelligence is studied. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on this. And then also, is there any way that particularly some of the newer and popular AIs are used in the course of your own daily workflow? Thank you so much, Patrick, for the question. I think this is going to be the future where 
where we can see how AI and EI are going to have a collaboration because still AI is going to have some challenges how to, you know, collab with emotional intelligence because as I already mentioned, it's very subjective and whatever information we have right now in terms of our data, that's what the machine is going to learn. And then we're going to have the AI to respond accordingly. But as having said that, specifically about emotions, I think it's going to be challenging for any sort of machine to work around that. But um, AI has become such a beautiful uh, way of, you know, uh, helping us and evolve. So for me, for example, we developed a game, we are developing a game where we're going to use a lot of like, uh, we're going to have artificial intelligence plugins and machine learning plugins to understand that how we can um, learn and unlearn human attributes as a player so instead of winning a game it's more about how what is how a person played a game and so it's in life also it's not about winning something it's about how you're playing it what kind of options you took while you played that game and that's going to help train your brain create more neural pathways and connections to understand your own behavior and to actually moderate uh your extreme points when you're actually playing a game. So playing a game is actually one of the beautiful way to understand somebody's behavior. That's, that's really, that's, that's what we have understood that how beautifully we can understand who a person is. So it's better than asking people to self-report an answer to a question because when questions are answered, they are prone to bias and may not be accurate. And even Patrick, uh, even if you give them a quasi experiments or make them sit in a lab experiment setup, somewhere down the line, their brain knows, you know, that I'm artificially sitting here and answering something. So there are always some SDRs, there are always some biases when they answer a question. But when they're playing a game, maybe after five to 10 minutes, they come in their zone because whether they want to win or whatever they want to do. So it's very interesting to see human behavior when they play games. So gaming industry is amazing. We know how big it is, but if can uh, what I am trying to do is if we can have a collab with the gaming industry, and uh, I am working on these, these games actually right now, and if we can make something where you know we can help human behavior to evolve with time using artificial intelligence as well. So yeah, that sounds like a fascinating project. I'm also um, a big fan of video games myself. <laughs> um, so, so what is the, is it one game that you're developing currently and what's the end goal of this? Is it to generally increase EQ, like a lot of brain teaser games, or is it um, sort of to serve as a mild therapy? Yeah, so we, uh, we're going to have two different games. So one which we made was a strategy base at present where uh, they had to do a task and we have to see that how they're doing that task. It's not about like how much time they are taking, are they winning that game or not? No. The focus will be what strategy they are doing to actually complete the task. The second one, which you said about uh, being more on the therapy side, then definitely uh, we, we, we have just started working, have just designed that, but it's going to take a longer run because there are already so many things in the market uh, relating to emotions, uh, like Calm app. There, there are many, many things. So to work around it, it's going to take a longer run. But uh, we started working with ADHD specifically uh, to work around that on a, because we cannot make a game and give like, oh, this is a solution for everything. So if I'm talking about ADHD, then 
if, if it's for kids, then the game has to be designed like this. If it's ADHD youngsters, then it has to be designed like this. If it is for stress and depression for youngsters, it has to be like this. So one game cannot be a solution for everything. So at present, oh, we started working on ADHDs for, especially for kids. So we're still uh, thinking how we're gonna run that in schools. Uh, let's see what happens. But yeah, so it's going to be a tough task because it's just not a game. There's more to it. So uh, we have to see that if, if you're talking about mental health or anything related to mental well-being for the game, the responsibility is higher. So we have to make sure we abide by the code of conduct and we are doing in the, within the rules of, uh, you know, human integrity. So yeah, so it's going to take a while, but it's interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be really interested to play this game and also quite interested to know where they can find it once it is released. So on that note, is there anything that you would like to promote to the audience before we begin to wrap up this podcast? Yeah, sure, Patrick. Thank you so much. I think uh, I have been part of academics for more than 10 years. And um, the, the experience which I had, I, I recently learned that's very important to do application of what I've done. And that's, for me, it wasn't happening just going for TEDx talks or, you know, writing a paper. So what I did, I, I started this thing, I started way back at Cornell in 2019. So we have an art department there. So I used to go there and uh, we used to just do some art. And there used to be people from all the, all the fields, you know, from neuroscience, from astronomy, from every place, okay. But we were able to connect on art. I do remember seeing many of the abstract oil paintings that you made. They were quite beautiful. Yes, the Friday <laughs> evenings, of course. And uh, so I did a very small art uh, session over there, which kind of helped me like, oh, how can I galvanize and how I can integrate um, something about from neuroscience, mental health emotions, and I can speak with the medium of art, you know? So people are not getting intimidated. So sincerely, Isabel and Patrick, if, if I just say to people that, you know, let's sit and talk about emotional health. I'm a psychologist, or you need to sit with me and talk about it. They're like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. Because the moment I'll say, oh, this is amygdala, this is temporal lobe, this is corpus callosum, they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So it's very important if I want to reach out to people, I need to be very humble. I need to create a safe space for them. So I found the medium of art, sound, and texture therapies as a very beautiful medium to talk to them. And interestingly, uh, I got a huge, amazing response um, when I started these workshops, which are actually curating about mental health. So I'm galvanizing, you know, mental health, I mean, uh, mental uh, health experts and artists to work together to create these customized workshops for like maybe 20, 25 people. They come for the workshop for three hours. They understand what's happening with them. It's not artisty. So I'm not asking them to become a Van Gogh or something like that. I'm just asking them just to have the color and paint or maybe have the sound therapy to understand that how their temporal lobe is working and or to do this texture therapy and give them neuroscience specific reasons that why they are feeling like this. So they say, oh, okay, that's why this is happening with me. And trust me, it has been such an amazing experience for me. Uh, people cry in the session, they let it out. Some people come for fun. And the best thing about these sessions have been that the people who are not ready to go to a therapist or even realize that they are going through a problem, after the session, they're like, I want to meet a therapist, maybe like, maybe I, I need to talk to somebody. And to make them understand this is not a taboo, just like your heart, 
if it's, it's not working properly, you need to go to a cardiologist. Similarly, if you are having some problem in brain, you just need to go and talk to somebody. It is just scientific. It is respectable. It's okay to do that. So these sessions are creating really amazing um, results for me. People are loving it. And they want it offline. So as Patrick said about AI. So in the, in the world of AI, when everything is going online, I think we are losing the human touch. So they are craving for it. So whenever we say we're going to have something in a platform which will be AI-based, they said, no, 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 we don't want that. We want something offline, you know, where we can connect with people. So it's going to be more treasurable. It'll be more valuable because human connect, again, as I already said, is, is the basic, you know, principle of our human evolution. And if we cannot lose that. So that's why these workshops are working. So I'm going to make it online for sure, but the demand is totally for offline. They are looking for offline human connections to understand what's happening within them. So yeah, so that's given me a lot of happiness when I'm doing this, you know. That sounds like an amazing initiative. Yeah, and the name is Enzo Life. You can just check out uh, check us out on Instagram. We do a lot of like, for textures, we do pottery, for sound, we do like a lot of uh, different kinds of frequencies. How does they work with your brain? We give them even support of uh, published papers that why we use this kind of frequency and that. So this is very interesting. Uh, and even Cornell is working on different sounds right now at the music department. So this all gives me happiness that what I'm doing is going to make sense. And we will leave a link to that in the description of the podcast. Um, all right, Diksha, I think that's all that we have for today. Thank you so much for being on. And Diksha, thank you so much for joining us today. We've talked about so many subjects from AI, default mode network, art, mental health. We're really happy you're here. Obviously, you and I have known each other for many years, so it is so exciting to get to talk to you in this format and hear so much about your research, and I'm very thankful. Yes, it's such an important topic, and um, I think all of our listeners are grateful for having you on the show. Thank you so much, Elizabeth and Patrick, uh, for having me here. I'm highly obliged that I'm on this platform, and I love what you guys are doing. You guys are making a difference, and you have no idea how many people are going to listen to your podcast. is going to impact their lives directly or indirectly. So I'm really proud of you guys. And I hope more and more people listen to Patrick and as well. So all the best guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, thank you.